You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads are needed to uncover the truth? Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode is the author of Murder in Room 117, Arthur Kent. He began his journalism career in 1973, and Walter Cronkite called him one of the best of the breed. Arthur Kent, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Larry. Thanks. Now, I find this cover fascinating. I know people online have already seen the cover, done a lot of tweets about the book, so you have a following already. But when I picked up the book for the first time and I saw the title, forgive me, it reminded me of an Agatha Christie mystery, Murder <laughs> in Room 117. So I'm not being flippant, but that was my first response. So the question I'll ask you, did you have input into the title of the book and with the way the cover looks? Because I think, and we're going to touch upon this, there's a picture of a gun in somebody's hand. And we'll get to a little bit later, but in my take of the book, that gun may be the Rosetta Stone of the whole story. Exactly. I I think, you know, Larry, I've been researching this uh, doggedly um, since since 2017. And, And over the years, especially when I finally made a breakthrough in in research and, and, and discovered what really happened. Because of course, it it was a mystery that just didn't make sense. You know, haunting, yes, as most mysteries are. But, But remember, for those of us who've been reporting in and around um, Southwest Asia and specifically Afghanistan since the early 80s, this was a, this was almost a, a legend. It was, it was, it was an incident that took place in 1979. The, the, a, a U.S. ambassador, the President Carter's personal representative to a country that most Americans granted had never heard of, Afghanistan. But he's kidnapped. And, and turns up dead within hours with Soviet KGB agents witnessed all over the place. Right. Not just fingerprints, but actually commanding what was alleged to be a rescue operation, but which eyewitnesses saw as something quite different. So after all these years, it's just never added up for any of us. When I went back and started digging, I, I began to get results almost right away by contacting the U.S. Foreign Service officers who were there at the time. And when the breakthrough was, when I, when I finally got there and all the lights went on, two, two things were, were completely obvious. Yes, the, a pistol and, and particular, in particular five phantom pistol rounds. Right heard by so many witnesses, but not seen uh, a pistol which had, which had changed hands between a Soviet spy and, and a secret policeman of the then Afghan communist regime. So 
that was that had to be on the cover. I I, I thought, and the word murder. You know, you you t- you talk about Agatha Christie. Right. Well, that comes from another person that you've mentioned, Larry Walter Cronkite. I can mean, I, well, can I ask you one question? I'm curious about this. Just interject something because I think it speaks to what you do and how difficult it is. I have a friend that does jigsaw puzzles to relax. To what degree is this story initially, when you first start to take a look at it, a jigsaw puzzle with a lot of missing pieces? That, that's precisely what it was, a jigsaw puzzle with perhaps a handful of pieces when literally thousands were missing. And, the, and this was, this was the, the jarring thing, first of all, that, that um, an American ambassador could be kidnapped and killed and, and the U.S. government's official report on it uh, after a year of supposed investigation it is titled only about the death of Ambassador Dubs. When, when at the time, the most trusted man in America, Walter Cronkite, had said on CBS Radio News, it was murder. A U.S. ambassador was murdered. And of course, in the fullness of time, that was the answer that my investigations, as I was trying to fit together that picture puzzle and, and driven as, as an investigator, yes, the, the pieces were coming. Every witness that, that I tracked down, every interview that I did, the pieces were coming. It, it, there was a kind of, of, of promise that was delivered by early success. And then when I got to the answer, I discovered, yes, indeed, there had been an official investigation by a U.S. State Department investigator. And within three months of, of Spike Dubb's murder, he had, he had delivered that to the then Secretary of State, Cyrus Vance, father of the current New York uh, um, uh, Southern District of New York uh, uh, lead attorney that we hear so much, Cy Vance Jr. Right. And the report was clear in its findings. Murder, Soviets responsible, as was the Afghan communist regime of the time. So let's explore and that. that report yeah, was let, hidden. Let's explore that. My guest is Arthur Kent. The book is called Murder in Room 117, Solving the Cold Case that Led to America's Longest War. And that's a very pro- provocative subtitle. Uh, I'm fascinated by geopolitics. In 1979, what was the geopolitics going on in that part of the world? You have the U.S. involved. You certainly had the Soviets. You had the Communist Party in Afghanistan. Why was Afghanistan so important in terms of geopolitics? Well, well, actually, and that's the point that, that goes to the way this case was allowed to go is because Afghanistan had no importance whatsoever. It was a geopolitical backwater. The Carter administration of the day, President Jimmy Carter and his national security advisors, Big Brzezinski and his secretary of state, Cyrus Vance, you know, they had, they had so many more uh, uh, issues commanding their attention. There were, there were ongoing arms talks with the Soviet Union. It was uh, the depths of the Cold War. China was threatening to invade Vietnam, from which the United States had withdrawn only only four years earlier in 1979. Jimmy Carter was almost more concerned with what was going on 
in Rhodesia, the future Zimbabwe, and in Mexico than he was with Afghanistan. And there was Iran. Iran was, the revolution had resulted uh, at the beginning of 1979 in the Shah, the US-backed Shah of Iran, leaving Tehran, and the Ayatollah, Ayatollah Khomeini flying in from Paris, becoming the new spiritual leader of Iran, so that the turmoil was extraordinary. And, and so Afghanistan at the time, ironically, was viewed by American Foreign Service officers and their families as a great posting. Why? The, Why? The zero, the, well, the threat level to Americans was assessed as exactly zero. Okay. No threat. Yes, there had been a revolution and a Soviet-backed Communist Party in Afghanistan had come to power in 1978. But they were, they were despised by the people. They were deeply unpopular. They were uh, inept and clumsy. And they were almost more of a terror to their Soviet patrons than, than, they ever, than they appeared to be to the West. But at this time, uh, President Carter was convinced, look, the Soviets are there. Things could happen. You better, you better send a really sharp guy and a Russia expert, you better send one of our best diplomats there to be your ambassador. And he, he agreed. And so um, uh, a, a seasoned uh, Russia hand, uh, fluently multilingual, um, well acquainted with the Soviet leadership who, who knew him by name, in, indeed even his nickname, Adolf Dubs, who early in his career, given the entomology of, of that, that forename had come to be known as Spike, Spike Debs. So he was, he was chosen by state and by the president to be U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan. And he went there in the summer of 1978 and discovered that Afghanistan was go going to become increasingly important to the United States and a place where the United States had to be extremely careful in practicing its diplomacy, its foreign policy. And uh, that's where the story began. I want to take a look back at his career. You, you, you touched upon some of that, but he was on a ship when he was in the Navy during World War II that was hit by a kamikaze bomber. So the fact that he survived that is fascinating too. I mean, he must have looked back and saying, well, I'm on my second life or my third life. Of course, the tragedy, which we'll dig into what happened to him, but he had a fascinating background. I believe in one point, he was at the Moscow station too. You talk about the background with the Soviets. He has already had a full and rich life. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, this contrasted so dramatically when I, when I began my research to discover who exactly was Spike Dubs. Well, at the time of his murder in 1979, the American people and indeed people around the world were only provided a pencil sketch of this fascinating man. This guy, this guy born in Chicago, he's, he's a natural athlete, uh, a killer ping pong table tennis player, right. but a guy who actually could have pursued a professional golfing career, terrific tennis player, but a very spiritual man. He was a gifted musician, played the piano, loved to lead gospel sing-alongs at the piano. And for a time, he considered going, um, in, in becoming a priest, becoming 
uh, a holy father. You can be going into um, religion, and and uh, but his experience, yeah, when he when he joined the navy in World War II, he was at the Battle of Leyte Gulf, and um, he survived a dreadful kamikaze strike on his ship, the USS Caldwell, and thirty of his shipmates were killed by this maniacal uh, weapon that the Japanese uh, in, in their desperation in the final years of the war had to feel to try to stop the U.S. fleet. And so it changed him. His experience in, in the war changed him. And he decided, you know, I, I want to pursue peace, as had been my intention when, when I thought of uh, going with the church for my life. But I think I'd rather do it in diplomacy. And so he went back to school. He took his exams uh, and joined the State Department. And yes, it, the um, perhaps the the pinnacle of his career in, uh, prior to becoming an ambassador was to serve as char- charge d'affaires, effectively the stand-in ambassador in Moscow. And uh, as such, in the early 70s, he was in regular contact with Soviet leaders, the, with the uh, general secretary and, and uh, uh, Leonid Brezhnev, uh, with uh, Andrei Gromyko, the premier, with, uh, he even met uh, Yuri Andropov, who was the chairman of the KGB, the party's man in the KGB. And he became accustomed in Moscow to being, to being followed 24-7, by the KGB because he was the most senior American diplomat in the Soviet Union. So highly skilled, uh, disengagingly cheerful. He he uh, was sharp and quick to engage his Soviet counterparts and always with a smile. And uh, they they uh, as we learned in the fullness of time, the the Russians understood that this was an adversary. Right, that they had to be, that that deserves special treatment, shall we say? Once again, my guest for the podcast, Artful Periscope, is Arthur Kent, the author of Murder Room One One Seven, solving the cold case that led to America's longest war. Let's go to that faithful day. I do know he liked to drive his old Oldsmobile. He liked to fish. He liked to get out to the countryside. He really liked to explore Afghanistan and the people. So on February the 14th, 1979, he wasn't driving, but he was being driven. What happened that he, day? You know, he, he arrived uh, and, and here there was this uh, great big cream-colored 1976 Oldsmobile Regency sedan that was serving as the ambassador's limousine. And you know that that it's it's one of the heaviest cars ever to roll off Detroit assembly line, but um, it's a big sedan. He lo- he loved it, and he he loved getting behind the wheel. So it's it's partially armored, and it has some special communications devices in it. And uh, his security officer, uh, his regional security officer at the U.S. Embassy at Embassy Kabul, is a man named Chuck Bowles. Right. And, you know, it's a tough former Marine and a, a, a guy who really took his security duties seriously. And he tried to persuade Spike, uh, sir, you know, really, you, you need to have your chauffeur, your driver, 
uh, an Afghan hire named Go Muhammad, terrifically experienced and capable Afghan wheelman who had had some defensive driving uh, instruction, knowledgeable, uh, fluent in English. You know, we want you, uh, Ambassador, Mr. Ambassador, we want your driver <laughs> to be behind the wheel. And Spike would always say, yeah, you're right. You know, that's a really good recommendation. And uh, I'll, I'll remember that, uh, you know, but he still loved to take the car out by himself. If, if his, for instance, there was one occasion when his secretary was coming back from holiday, he drove to the airport to pick her up right. himself behind the wheel. And uh, uh, so it, it was always, but that was Spike. You know, he, he was fascinated by the Afghan people. He loved Kabul. He loved, as, as all of us do, we, coming from the West, when we see that landscape, when we, when we see the Hindu Kush mountains, when we're in the desert, when we see the, the Kuchi people, the Afghan nomads, when you see the way ordinary families live in villages, in, in high mountain valleys, you know, you, you just, it's entrancing. It's hypnotic. And Spike loved to get out in the countryside, though on those occasions, he, uh, he, he did uh, allow his drivers and, and security personnel to accompany him. But generally, he wanted not to be seen. He wanted to be able to approach the Afghan people like uh, uh, in, an, in an engaging way, not put them off with all sorts of security. So he's in the car with his driver. He's approaching, I believe, the Kabul, Kabul Hotel. What happened? Well, he, he, uh, they were midway on their journey, a short drive from the ambassador's residence. His driver, Go Muhammad, was uh, behind the wheel. Um, Spike was in the back seat on the, on the passenger side, the right-hand side of the car. And they, they were actually near the prime ministry of the, of the Afghan, again, what was a communist regime at the time. And the foreign minister and, and vice uh, president, the, the premier, uh, a man named Hafizullah Amin, U.S. educated, attended university in the United States. His office was, was right there on a broad avenue that was uh, a, about a mile from the U.S. embassy. And that there was heavy traffic. And... Um, Spike's driver, Go Muhammad, looked up and he saw a policeman in a sergeant's uniform walking towards the car and, and holding up a hand, telling them to stop. And so he stopped the car. The, the policeman, they thought, approached the car and, and signaled, roll down the window and to... Uh, Go Muhammad at, turned to the, the ambassador and said, what should I do? And he said, go ahead and find out what he, what he wants. So Go Muhammad rolled down the electric window, the driver's side, and uh, the, the officer was looking in saying, I, I, this will only take a minute. I just want to check. But he very deftly reached around with one hand and popped up the lock. Right. On the, on the rear door and pulled a gun with his other hand. And then the doors of the car opened on both sides and soon Spike found himself with 
an unidentified man in civilian dress kneeling before him in the in the footwell in the back seat with a gun, pointing a gun at him. Another man beside him, uh, another man getting into the front seat, the, and the and the police officer taking off his cap and crowding into the back seat too. So now a gun is put in the back of the driver's head. Go Muhammad's neck feels a gun barrel. Take us to the hotel, Kabul. Drive. And that was that was what happened. And it, the the four gunmen um, forced, sometimes threatening to shoot the driver. One of one of the one of the one of the gunmen said to the man in charge, "Shoot him now." No, they made him go to the hotel. Pulling up in front of the hotel cobble, the driver's head was forced down. He thought, this is where I'm going to be shot. But the kidnappers uh, took Spike out a door, in through the front door as the doorman held the door open, not knowing what was going on, and took him upstairs, through the lobby and upstairs, and stood, forced him in front of a room with those three brass numerals, one, one, seven. One seventeen. Here's my reaction when I'm going through that part of the book. It's going to be strange. I was thinking of the Secret Service member who was there to protect President Kennedy when he was assassinated. Till this day, he still feels guilty. Does Galt still feel guilty about having to leave him behind? Well, go, you know, go Mohammed was a fascinating story because of course he was, he was ordered by one of the gunmen came back, pointed a gun at him again and said, go now go to the embassy and tell them what's happened. Go was so confused. You know, he did, he didn't know, you know, is this the police who've arrested the ambassador? What the guns he did? He just went back and told the story. He was interviewed again and again and never wavered. In his story, and in the fullness of time, a, a polygrapher, a lie detector operator, was sent from Langley by the CIA right. to to Kabul, and and gave him a lie detector test, and Go Muhammad passed. He never varied in his story, and of course, he was broken by what had happened. But I think when when you ask about I think it applies to Spike's entire staff. What the, the events of that day have left all of the survivors um, haunted to, to varying degrees. And certainly the, the officers who went to the Hotel Kabul to try to save him, right. they, they were put in an impossible situation. And I've always felt that they, they, they should have been able to do more, but were prevented from doing so. M- many describe it very simply as the worst day of their lives, then and now. To dig a little bit deeper, years. traditionally, if it's quote-unquote a terrorist organization, they acknowledge that. There were no demands, no negotiations. What does that, what does that tell us about what transpired? The... the this was the bizarre situation that confronted Spike's staff at Embassy Kabul immediately. They couldn't get anyone in the 
communist regime, the Afghan communist regime, not the president, not prime minister, Amin, foreign minister, Amin, to, they couldn't, Tarun, the secret police chief, the dreaded and feared secret police chief, he, he contacted the embassy at one point and said, don't worry, nothing rash is going to happen. We're in control of the situation. But the Americans, of course, uh, Spike's deputy chief of mission was uh, Bruce Amstutz at the time. This was his second posting to Afghanistan. He knew his way around. This is senior, senior American diplomat. He, he tried and tried and tried and all of his officers, he sent them to different government offices. I wanna speak to somebody and we wanna have communications right away so we find out what this gang wants. At no time were American officials in Kabul or in Washington able to establish contact with the Afghan authorities or Soviet authorities who, who must have been in the know because the, the, only, the only thing that Americans were, were given to conclude, the team that went to the Hotel Kabul, right. was when four Soviet KGB officers showed up. And these guys were, they were, they were obviously intelligence officers because they, they, they were dressed in almost uh, comical spy versus spy fashion. Black, black Soviet fedoras, black overcoats, and they they immediately took charge. So it, 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 it no terrorist group has ever taken claim has ever claimed to be responsible for this kidnapping, and and what what occurred afterwards. And thus, on that day, it was it's just an emptiness, a void. Of information. What I want to ask you, by the way, once again, my guest is Arthur Kent, author of Murder in Room 117. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. The siege is cinematic. Would you please describe what happened? Well, at first it was all confusion. And <laughs> this kidnap gang was hopelessly inept. Spike found himself rushed upstairs by three of these characters. One of them disappeared. Uh, he, he's being held at, a ho- at, at, at the door to room 117. And suddenly an argument breaks out among the three kidnappers holding it. They don't have a key. One of them gets sent down to the front desk where he manages to talk the front desk uh, staff out of a key, but a, bell, a bellman brings it with them. They go back upstairs. The door is opened, and two of the kidnappers push Spike inside and slam a door. The other one starts running away. Well, the, the bellman runs after him and says, stop him, they're criminals. Because he had seen a gun flash and was being used to, to press into Spike's back. So the third man was captured alive by the hotel staff and held down. Soon police showed up and then heavily armed Afghan communist regime soldiers showed up with machine guns, but it, the, the scene was all confusion. And the Americans who arrived from Embassy Kabul, the, the consul, Mike Malinowski, the uh, political counselor, senior political counselor, Bruce, Bruce Flatine, uh, eventually the doctor 
from the dispensary, Lloyd Rotz, uh, Drug uh, Enforcement Administration Officer, Doug Wonko, CIA uh, uh, case officer, Warren Merrick. They, they arrived and they witnessed, you know, it's almost like we would wish these these KGB, these Soviet spies who showed up would take control and, and you know, calm everybody down because right, right. they were afraid that guns were going to start going off and, and everything would end badly. But instead what happened was that a, two camps, two camps formed up in the hallway on the upper floor of the Hotel Kabul outside room 117. At one side were the Soviet spies and behind them the heavily armed Afghan soldiers. On the, on the other side of the door, about a dozen feet away, were the Americans, foreign service officers, all of them unarmed, none of them armed. A couple of them had radios, Motorola two-ways to keep the embassy informed. And again, behind the Americans, more Afghan soldiers and police. So it was like a, it was like the Cold War in miniature right. with the Soviets and their, and their uh, client regime, the Afghan communists on one side and the Americans on the other. And it's kind of no man's land in between in front of this room where the kidnappers had no telephone they had no two-way rate. They had no way to communicate. The entire thing was, they, they had broken every rule of Kidnap 101. And from Embassy Kabul all the way to the State Department operations room in Washington, D.C. at Foggy Bottom, there was confusion. How can we deal with this when we don't even know who these men are or what they want? And at no time, indeed, were any demands put to the only group that could have given anything in exchange for Spike Dub's safety, well, the U.S. What, government. What I'd like to do is take a short break, and I want to go back inside the room because there's another key piece of evidence that is a mini Rosetta Stone. And one, the sweater the ambassador was wearing and how they found him once they got inside the room. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. A little bit about my guest. In 1989, he won two Emmy Awards for NBC's coverage of the Tiananmen Square Massacre and the Romanian uprisings, risings, and 1991 coverage of the Persian Gulf War. He came with the nickname, I don't know if he still likes this nickname or not, <laughs> the Scud Stud. Arthur Kent, welcome back to the conversation. Hey, thank you, Larry. So before the break, we talked about getting inside in the aftermath. It's, it's a crime scene. There's a murder. It's a crime scene. There's bullet holes all over the place. And we find Ambassador Dubs sitting upright in a chair wearing a sweater. What's wrong with that? Indeed, it was, it, it, it was a, a strange and, and unnerving scene that awaited the Americans who, who made their way into the room. As 
soon as the shooting stopped, you know, there was some somewhere between 15 and 40 seconds of eight Kalashnikovs firing on automatic fire, just an incredible fusillade. And, and then as the Americans approached in the hallway, they, they were stopped again. They heard five pistol shots, bam, 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 right. Right. coming from the room. And, and they froze for a second. What's going on? Then finally, they had to charge forward. The, the doctor was there. He had a stretcher uh, and, and, and four other officers with him. First man through the door is Chuck Bowles, the security officer. And he, the door has just been shot away. It's, he notices a figure standing to his right in what turned out to be the entry, entry of the bathroom in the room. And Chuck Bowles recognized the guy. That's, that's the plainclothes Afghan policeman who took the pistol from the Soviet spy a few minutes before the shooting started. What was he doing? How had he gotten in the room? What's he doing standing there? And then they just, he decided, no, I got to go. He had to go to the left and make his way, lead the others down a short corridor. And they discovered the, the bodies of the, of the two kidnappers who were known to be in the room with Ambassador Dubbs on the floor, evidently dead. The room was full of acrid smoke and still smoldering from all this gunfire, sunlight bleeding in through bullet holes. And when, they, when the men got far enough, they could see through the smoke as it was clearing. They saw a figure seated in a chair. It was Ambassador Dubbs. They rushed to him and he, he wasn't tied to the chair. He was, just, he was just sitting there, but it was pretty clear to Dr. Rotz and to the others that Spike was gone. And they picked him up, his sweater. He was wearing a sweater. He had a sport jacket over a sweater and a hat and glasses. That, that was hat, glasses, sport jacket were laying on a bed, blood everywhere. When they, when they lifted Spike off the chair and put him in the stretcher, they all felt his, his sweater was soaked. And, and, and the, the, the red purple color was even a deeper red. They, they, they assumed it, but they had blood, blood was everywhere. They assumed it was his blood. They put him on the stretcher. They got him out of that room. There were, the ambulance was waiting downstairs. The embassy cobble station wagon that had been rigged into an ab- ambulance. They put him in the back. Doctor began CPR and mouth to mouth even as they drove him over to the dispensary, hoping against hope that he would survive. Sadly, he, he was gone. And they did an initial autopsy at the, at the U.S. Uh, AID compound at the dispensary that evening. And, and all, everything that they found was later sent to Washington, D.C., where a formal autopsy. Right was performed at Walter Reed. And the, the initial autopsy in Kabul, the doctors were mystified at first. They assumed with all the blood uh, that was coming from his chest and midsection that the bullet wounds in his chest were the cause of death. It turned out that wasn't the case. One bullet was lodged so deeply in a lung they couldn't find it. The other had had hit a rib and scored along the rib over 
from the flesh was had produced a great loss of blood, but not such that it would kill a man. What they did find with x-rays were five small rounds, pistol slugs in his skull. Three had been fired from into one temple and two into the other. The full autopsy report has never been released. We've uncovered cable references to the bullets and bullet fragments that were taken from Spike's body. As a silent witness, he carried them back to Washington, D.C., to Walter Reed. The FBI listed every fragment that was taken from his body. And the Embassy Kabul team, the American diplomat, Spike's team back in, D in Kabul, never heard anything more except that Dr. Ratz was told that the medical examiner and the forensic scientists in right. Right. Washington had determined that that sweater was not only soaked in blood, but they also found fluid, water, consistent, an oily water full of chemicals, consistent with the water from the broken radiator in room 117 that had soaked up oily water from the system, but had also soaked in all of the debris and gun smoke that had, that had been discharged in the room by the breach team, the three riflemen who had gone into the room and, and with all the gunfire that had blasted in from the balcony of the bank across the street, five riflemen had been firing on full automatic into the windows and into the walls. So all sorts of, of firearms, um, uh, gases and chemicals had been released into that room and had, had settled in that water on the floor. And the water that was recovered in Spike's sweater proved that at one point he had been on the floor, as you might expect of somebody who seated in a chair when all that shooting starts dives for cover. Somebody had actually picked him up and placed him in that chair. And what the forensics scientists that I've interviewed have determined is a lot could be discovered by now going back and with 21st century uh, forensics, metallurgy, and, and other chemical analysis, analysis of the bullet fragments taken from Spike's body, the reanalysis of that sweater, of the other clothing he was wearing, examination of the autopsy photographs and desk notes uh, could tell us when exactly those pistol rounds were fired into his head. Now, this, while he was on the floor, this or is, as we suspect, when he was put back in the chair. So, is this why you reference the St. Valentine's massacre in 1929? <laughs> is that part of the equation? Indeed. I mean, I mean, it's just how ironic could that be? Spike Dubs was was kidnapped <clears throat> at gunpoint, taken to that hotel, and murdered on St. Valentine's Day, 1979. It was the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Ganglang, Chicago in the 30s, decades earlier, that really was the birthplace of modern firearms forensics.
because the forensic specialists at Northwestern University in Chicago were called to explain. Because remember, the police, when the police found the men who'd been killed in the, say, Valentine's Day massacre, the gangsters who'd been shot by their rivals, Al Capone's gang, when they went, when the police went into that garage, all they had was bodies, shell casings, and bullet holes in, in the wall and in the bodies. So the forensics experts uh, were able to determine who'd been shot first, where they'd been standing, what, what weapons and ammunition had been used. And the man who is now arguably uh, America's foremost firearms forensics scientist, Luke Haig, is, is the uh, forensic specialist that I've interviewed and, and gotten to know uh, with, uh, with the book Murder in Room 117. And we're very anxious. He's, he, he's a, a forensic specialist. He set up the crime lab uh, in Phoenix, Arizona for the Phoenix Police Department. He's worked with the FBI uh, on numerous occasions. He's, he's worked on both sides of cases trying to determine the truth uh, about mur murder, um, alleged homicide um, perpetrators, uh, either for or against innocence or guilt on the basis of scientific evidence. So what we have, what we believe the evidence demonstrates in, in the case of the murdered U.S. ambassador in Kabul on Valentine's Day 1979 is that there is so much more now that could be learned by a re-examination, a scientific re-examination and a reinvestigation of the physical evidence, such as it, it must still be retained by the FBI and the State Department in Washington, even today. I want to take a step back under the rubric events have consequences. The same time this was going on was the siege of the American embassy in Tehran. Now, if you know a little bit of your history and you know a lot more than I do as a journalist, I believe the CIA had a hand in overthrowing the elected leader of Iran, Mossadegh, which led to the Shah, which led to the overthrow and, and the Ayatollah coming, which led to the siege at the embassy in Tehran. Now, we have the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Under, I don't know if that was the Brezhnev doctrine or not. And if you look at the timeline, that was considered their Vietnam. And because of that, later on down the line, the Soviet empire imploded. We got Russia. We got a former KGB member, a strongman, Putin, taking over. And now trying to reimagine, in his own view, the Soviet Union. These threads <laughs> fascinate me. And I wonder, in this whole context, how does the CIA view all what's going on then and now? Well, you're right, Larry. The, the turbulence and the cross currents lead all the way back into the early 70s. Remember, Vladimir Putin... Uh, joined the KGB, became a KGB officer in 1976. So he was in the third year of his career at the time that Spike Dubbs was, uh, was kidnapped and murdered. The, what, what the evidence 
demonstrates is that the CIA in 1979 was still was still crippled uh, to a very great degree in the aftermath of Watergate and the Vietnam War. The CIA was really putting itself back together again. There were only six desks at the CIA station at Embassy Kabul in 1979, and one of them was a secretary. Against that, the Soviet KGB had more than 200, it's estimated, officers in Kabul, many hundreds more agents working in the ministries of the Afghan communist regime. And of course, the Soviet GRU, the military intelligence branch, was there in numbers that we we really can't accurately estimate still. But I think what it all says, you know, all of us can get dizzy listening to this or, or even talking about it today. Right, right. Here we are, Afghanistan's back in the headlines. Vladimir Putin, who's a kind of, of, of would-be czar of Russia, but is still practicing his KGB tradecraft now as a very wealthy autocrat and, and with a whole community of former and current spies surrounding him, protecting him. Uh, uh, you know, people can be forgiven for, for just, you know, be, being so confused. And I think that's the essential lesson of this story. Because Ambassador Dubs, Spike Dubs, was a highly, highly cautious American diplomat. As a, as a practitioner and advisor of American foreign policy, of American policy overseas, uh, Spike remembered that experience surviving a kamikaze attack he, he, decades earlier during during World War II, he remembered the horror of war. He understood that war, conventional or now in the in the atomic and nuclear age, total war, had to be avoided at all costs. And and that in a place like Afghanistan, right, there there it, it was a place that the United States needed to exercise extreme caution so as not to get involved. He he thought, Ambassador Dubs thought, let's not do anything that forces the Afghan communists any deeper, any closer into the Soviets' embrace. Let's, let's do smart stuff. The United States has resources the Soviet Union will never have. Let's use our wealth and channel it somehow to the ordinary Afghan people. The, the sad irony is that in the, in the aftermath of Spike's murder, you know, President Carter was saddened and he was enraged, um, as was his secretary of state, his national security advisor, his whole team. But instead of doing what Spike would have advocated, most certainly, if you look at his record, if you listen to his colleagues, as I have, if you listen to what they believe Spike would have, would have done, had he still, let's be careful. Let's, whatever we do, let's not get involved in this ugly civil war that's growing with anti-Soviet Islamic guerrillas based in Pakistan, looking like they're involved in an ever escalating war. And yet, sadly, the Carter administration, instead of dealing frankly with the State Department investigators report showing, concluding, 
that that whether or not the Soviets were involved in planning a kidnapping, it was absolutely true that they decided that he shouldn't come out of that room alive. And they made sure that that would happen. Instead of dealing with that, the Carter administration invited the CIA to start suggesting covert actions that would support the anti-Soviet guerrillas. And so in, in July, months after Spike's killing in February of 1979, the first money was channeled from the U.S. government via the CIA through the spy agency of a neighboring Islamic military dictatorship, Pakistan, to the Afghan, some of the Afghan Mujahideen and the anti-Soviet guerrillas. And that fateful decision, which was, you know, you look at Spike's record. When Spike was ambassador in Kabul in the summer of 78, some Afghan doctors, a group of Afghan physicians, prominent physicians, respected men made contact with the U.S. embassy. Help us, they said. We want to overthrow the communist government. Spike advised against it. He said, he said we can't help them because that would give the doctors however wholesome and well-meaning their plot is, it would give them an unreasonable expectation of our ability as the United States to influence events all the way over here on the other side of the world on the Soviets, on the gateway to the Soviet Union. So he, Spike advised against it, even though his first instincts were to admire these physicians for wanting to overthrow the Soviets. So it is a sad consequence and really, really, Larry, I have to say it's one of the main reasons I wrote this book. It is commendable that President Biden and Americans might wish U.S. forces to withdraw entirely from Afghanistan. Too many U.S. and British, Canadian uh, and Afghan soldiers have given their lives. Far too many Afghan civilians, as always the civilians suffer most. But until we go back and understand what happened to the first American killed in the Afghan wars, who was Spike Dubbs, ambassador murdered on Valentine's Day, 1979, until we go back and understand what happened and what went wrong in Washington's response to that murder, we'll never really understand what to do now and how to fully disengage from Afghanistan. I'm going to ask you to stay with us because I want to go outside the covers of the book and talk about events that are transpiring today because I want your opinion as a journalist and just as a person who understands the landscape of what's happening in the world today. I'm going to take a short break. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Um, We talk about war and the implications of war. What are your thoughts about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? I just watched on HBO the Oslo Accords. It was a stage play that became a HBO TV program. Really, really interesting about when transpired between the Palestinians 
and the Israelis, well, was taking place in Oslo, Norway. And I think about what just happened in the conflict in Palestine and, and in Israel, and it reminds me of the movie, I hate to say this, Netanyahu is in trouble, wag the dog. What are your feelings about that? <laughs> well, you know, I, w- I would say, yeah, I have, I'm, I'm really proud of my colleagues, um, the new generation of uh, foreign correspondents and those uh, from, from my era as well, who are there in Gaza, uh, on the West Bank and, is, and in Israel, reporting back to the United States. And I, I, would, I would say that the, the most important thing that all of us can do is to remain informed. And, um, you know, the Americans have um, a, a wonderful, the American people have a wonderful institution uh, on which generations of Americans have relied. Uh, it's called uh, the United States News Media. And, and one organization in particular, the Associated Press, AP, has, has done a tremendous job in reporting both sides, indeed all sides of, of this conflict, and also experienced uh, at the height of the recent, uh, recent exchanges of fire, um, the loss of its headquarters in Gaza. Right. Its building was destroyed. Nevertheless, the Associated Press uh, retained the institution's composure and its journalists continued reporting. And I think it's, it's extremely important for uh, Americans and for people everywhere, if we're ever going to understand what the, what the roadmap is out of this horrific conflict, which destabilizes our entire planet, we have to understand um, the needs and aspirations of both the Palestinian people and the Israelis. We need to understand the daily realities of the Palestinians living in the West Bank and in Gaza. We need to understand more about the forces that are behind uh, Hamas, the the organization which claims to be the rightful um, arbiter of all things uh, in 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 Gaza. We need to understand what's what's happening from Iran, from Lebanon. We need to understand the forces at work um, in Israeli politics, and that's really been the hasn't it been fantastic that in the aftermath of this hot war, an, another war, a political battle takes shape right. with with disparate forces with within the Israeli Knesset to band together to try to force uh, Benjamin Netanyahu out of power um, after so long. And a coalition has been put put together, which seems extremely fragile. So I would just say, you know, from my point of view, as as a journalist who has some experience there, um, this is a complex issue that needs to be watched closely, and the world needs to study and find a way to end this. And the only way that it will end is by uh, reaching down into our common sense and recognizing that all human beings deserve to live in peace, deserve um, to raise their children with clean water, adequate food and medicine, 
education and, and freedom from war. And I think that's the only way we're going to be led out of this. And uh, uh, it, it's, it was heartbreaking to see the loss of life there. But again, let's, let's read, let's watch, let's listen, let's inform ourselves and get a full view of what's going on. Over the course of your career, you've had a lot of contacts, a lot of people you could go to off the record and on the record. Do you have an opinion about the Steele dossier? Have you read it? What do you think about it? <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, I, I, think, um, I, I think to me, uh, I have to say, as I, as I you, know, you know, the lockdown has kept us all in place. Yeah. And I'm, t- I'm speaking to you from Western Canada, uh, my hometown where, where I've had to spend the, the pandemic. And so I'm basing what I'm about to say on American voices I'm hearing in the news media and also in discussions like this and over the telephone. And, and I have to say that at this point, what, what I am most encouraged by are those Americans who are looking to the future now, who are looking at what has been accomplished since election day last November, since the inauguration in January, looking at the challenges around the world, uh, the, the American voices that I'm hearing that make me most hopeful are those that are looking forward and I think it's absolutely the case that, you know, be- beginning with the January 6th investigations right. and going all the way back to the conduct of the FBI and the, and, and the Justice Department uh, during the previous administration. Yes, that's all well and good. And it bears a good deal more uh, examination. And look, you know, here I am talking about an advanced redrafting of history after 42 years. So that'll take care of itself. It needs to take care of, us, of itself. But mostly, I would say that my attention is focused on moving forward. And, and most, most urgently, of course, with regard to Afghanistan, because I, I think that in confronting Vladimir Putin, all the G7 leaders are having to contemplate what are we going to do about Russia? Look back and recognize that President Putin is playing by the same KGB playbook that resulted in Spike Dub's murder, that resulted in the decades of disinformation and cover-up and smoke screening that has been going. You know, we, we had to wait until a defector from the KGB, Vasily Matrokin. He was an archivist. He worked in the KGB's library. Imagine working in the KGB's library. Imagine he comes out in the late 1990s, defects to the West and delivers to British intelligence. You know, the CIA unfortunately turned him away initially, but he, he initially went to the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. and produced a wonderful, wonderful work about the Soviets in Afghanistan. And what, what he tells you was, well, yeah, absolutely. Spike Dubs, the, the Soviet leadership and and particularly Andropov and the leaders of the KGB, they looked at Spike Dubs as a dangerous adversary. And it was no surprise. They find out that he's cornered with 
with these incompetent gunmen in a hotel room in Kabul. You know, there was little surprise at what they resorted to. And to cover up the truth about Spike's murder, they they actually grabbed a guy out of a prison and, and murdered him too. So that so that the bodies they displayed on the on the floor to the to the American Foreign Service officers after Spike's death at the morgue would add up to the four kidnappers that Spike's driver attested had first taken him to the Hotel Kabul, which farcically untrue. But that's the story that Vladimir Putin and his wider circle of Siloviki right. or current and former spies still swears to is still trying to sell. So until the West figures out how Putin thinks, how he operates, and the evidence is there. Many other writers have written convincingly, and this book as well tries to demonstrate. This is how, it, this is how the song goes. It could be Novichok poisoning of political opponents or other defectors abroad, or it goes back all the way to the murder of Spike Dubs. And in, tr- in understanding that, we'll understand better what to do, how to deal with Russia now, and what to do in Afghanistan. Before we say goodbye, I want to get a little personal. My feeling, all we have is our reputations. Our word is our bond. And I don't equate myself with you. I, ne- I would never do that. But I want to go back to, because this, this is really interesting. Um, and I just watched a TV series on CNN about late night TV and all the machinations that went on with Jay Leno and, and late night TV with NBC and David Letterman and Conan O'Brien. It's fascinating. You had your own machinations and difficulties, I believe, when you were on Dateline with NBC going back to, I believe, 1994. And you filed, um, correct me if I'm wrong, a $25 million suit. What was that all about? I go back to the fact that reputation is everything and you have to stand up for yourself if you think you've been wronged. Indeed. And, you know, I, I, I wrote a book about this risk and, and redemption because it is true that that's all we have as journalists in particular, but as professionals generally, all we've got is our reputation and our name. And uh, uh, in, 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 a, in a funny and very weird way, back in, in 1992, I guess you, you could say that I was, I was one of the first victims of fake news and cancel culture all mixed up together and perpetrated by one of America's largest news organizations, my former employer, uh, NBC News, then owned by General Electric. So at the end of the Gulf War, my goodness, I was, I was riding high. So I was on Johnny Carson. I got to meet Johnny Carson, a wonderful experience. One of the great experiences of, of my career. Phil Donahue had me on his show. David Letterman. I mean, it was, it was terrific to be guested and to be treated with such uh, dignity by these, by these uh, wonderful broadcasters. And, you know, I, I went on as a reporter. Uh, I had a falling out with, with NBC. They were dumbing down the news department. It was a contract dispute. And uh, sadly, I had to get a, my lawyer to write to NBC management and say, look, you know what? Since you're at daggers drawn, as the English say, 
since you're, you know, Kent's not going to go to any war zones for you while this is going on, because frankly, he wouldn't go to the corner drugstore for you right now because things have really broken down. So let's resolve this. Well, NBC management's response to that was to suddenly assign me to go to Bosnia in the middle uh, to go to Sarajevo in the depths of the Bosnian war, which I, I eventually did uh, report on and film as an, as an independent. But of course, I had to decline. But I, I, I simply responded, well, you've got it in writing. You know, I can't get, go there when I'm not really fully trusting management. Sadly, they put out the word that I had uh, chickened out. I remember John Carmody, the entertainment reporter for the Washington Post at the time, he called me up in Rome where I was basically blacked out because the Rome telephone system at that time, very unreliable. John, John Carmody, hey, Arthur, so NBC tells me you chickened out. <laughs> Is it true? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was, I was pretty furious. And I came back to New York and I, I met my colleagues going to work the following Monday morning at 30 Rock outside on, on the sidewalk. And, and at that time, Jay Leno had just become the new host of, of The Tonight Show. Right. And uh, his producer contacted uh, my agent and said, you know, this is just mind blowing. You know, here's, here our star reporter is suddenly, you know, being attacked by management, it, you know, we'd like him to come out to LA and be on the show with Jay and tell his story. So, uh, Hey, who was I to argue with that? So I, they flew me out to Los Angeles, you know, while one part of NBC was attacking me, another part of NBC flew me out to LA and put me up the Westwood marquee was wonderful. But, but just prior to the show going on the air, the entertainment division lawyers, who had more and more taken control of NBC News, sent a fax to Jay Leno and his producer and said, you know, you're not having Kent on, on the program. He could, you know, you could end up getting sued. You can't have him on. They, 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 they just said, no way can, can he be on the show. So my lawyers and I, I engaged lawyers in Los Angeles and, uh, the, the show went on. We watched the show that and Jay Leno came on, came on and the announcer said, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno without Arthur Kent. <laughs> <laughs> and they kept doing that through the show. At one point, Jay said to Wynton Marsalis, I think that was Arthur Kent's favorite tune, wasn't it? I mean, they really pushed it. But yes, I, you know, I sued and fortunately, uh, for within 14 months, as it turned out, from August of 92 until March of uh, 93. Finally, NBC surrendered. Um, they, um, shall we say, paid for their mistake. And I, I insisted that I have the right to put all the evidence in my book because I wasn't going to cover up right. this, this. So um, that's risk and redemption. You know, I was invited back to NBC, but I, you know, by that time I had savored independence. And so, uh, so I've remained independent to, to this day. But uh, I would say, you know, I speak, you hear me, you know, you finish fresh when you win. It, it had a happy ending, but my jovial 
recounting of these circumstances uh, can't detract from the fact that I have a huge respect for for the women and and the men who who have come out um, in the Me Too movement and and elsewhere and and those who have been forced um, tragically to defend themselves um, and to to make wrongs right again and um, you know I was hugely encouraged I'm hugely encouraged by these by these trends but I do have to point out you know I I look at you know the the sad aftermath of the last election some very important lawsuits are taking place now um, uh, with regard to the reputational damage done to corporations and individuals who worked honestly during uh, the 2020 election in the United States and and where the, those wrongs need to be set right. So we're going to be hearing we're going to be hearing more about it but uh, uh, I I would I would just say that anyone who is uh, addressing past wrongs um, physically emotionally uh, in gender politics, uh, in relationships, in and and certainly in reputational damage, you know you you have my support. And the reason I wrote Risk and Redemption, and the reason I made that evidence public, including all the depositions we did, was to was to demonstrate that simply because um, wrongs are concealed, as in the murder of Spike Dubs or simply because smoke screens and disinformation is poured out to black and reputations, that's not the end of it. Um, we have to uh, speak up for ourselves as people, as individuals, as men and women. And um, what, however we identify, and um, we have to seek the rights um, that, that, that we deserve and are entitled to. Uh, well said. My guest is the author of Murder in Room 117, Arthur Kent. Arthur Kent, hopefully there's much, not too much of a step down for you. I thoroughly enjoyed having, Hell this, no. having this conversation. <laughs> I really appreciate your questions, Larry, and I love uh, conversing with you. Uh, Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro. Sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com.
If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at LarryDavidsonsProductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tied you to her kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair.